Tu m'as dit je t'aime, je t'ai dit attends, j'allais dire prends-moi, tu m'as dit va-t'en. Well, that was the opening music to Jules and Jim, released in 1962. And it stars uh, Jean Moreau as Catherine, Oscar Werner as Jules, and Henry Saray as Jim. Uh, there's a few other supporting characters, but those are the main. Oh, I should mention Sabine Harpin, uh, who plays Sabine, La Petite. She was cute. Uh, Oh, she's their daughter. Yeah, the daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, this is a second movie in a two-movie festival that we've been doing for Jean Moreau. Uh, we had to substitute this movie for uh, The Bride Wore Black because that movie is not available on any streaming service or Netflix DVD. And to buy a copy is... I don't know, it's pretty expensive, like 20 US dollars or, or more. So that falls outside the realm of what we've typically wanted to do. Uh, but this actually turned out really good, and I'm kind of glad. I don't know, I haven't seen The Bride War Black, but this one was a nice counterpoint to Elevator to the Gallows in some ways. It was a little bit later in her career. Yeah, just about 10 years uh, later. Yeah. And she definitely has a main role. I could have just called this movie Catherine. To me, it's really kind of got three chapters in the in the movie the the first chapter is when Jules and Jim are are palling around and then they see that statue and then they meet Catherine and uh, they both fall in love with her so that's chapter one then there's the intervening chapter two of World War one with those horrendous photos and and film of the war and then chapter three after the war and how that changed all three of them and how it turns into this love triangle that, that, that becomes a tragedy. And I, and I was reading where the author of the book, uh, it was written in 1953, and the author of the book really approved of the way the film was made to represent the actual story that was autobiographical of his, of his affair with uh, a, a woman named Helen and another man named Franz. It was, so it was Henri, Franz, and Helen. Hmm were the characters in the book. But uh, it, 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 to me, it's, it's uh, the first chapter is, is, is fun to watch. It's, uh, they're, like, they're like teenagers almost. You know, they're falling in love and they're running around. The music at the beginning is almost like carnival or circus music. It almost reminded me of like the silent era, like a Charlie Chaplin goofing around, physical comedy. Yeah, these two guys are super best friends. As best friends as best friends could be, right? And I was even reading there's some subtext that maybe they were lovers as well. You know, they, they spent all their time together. He was writing a story and, and it was about their their life and meeting and kind of time together. C'est bien. Et votre livre c'est avance? J'ai pas mal travaillé, oui. Je crois qu'il sera assez assez autobiographique. Notre amitié jouera un rôle important. Je voudrais bien vous en lire un passage. Avec plaisir. Jacques et Julien ne se quittaient plus. 
Le dernier roman de Julien avait eu du succès. Il y décrivait dans une atmosphère de contes de fées des femmes qu'il avait connues avant le temps de Jacques et même de Lucienne. Jacques était fier pour Julien. On les surnommait Don Quichotte et son Chopinsa, et les gens du quartier leur prêtèrent bientôt à leur insu des mœurs spéciales. Ils mangeaient ensemble dans de petits bistrots. Les cigares étaient leurs dépenses. Chacun choisissait le meilleur pour l'autre. C'est vraiment très beau. Si vous me les laissez, je voudrais le traduire en allemand. Et maintenant, à la douche. I agree with you. I think that the way you describe the different segments of the film are how I viewed it. After the first third, Nancy and I were saying, well, this is really a delightful film about a love triangle and they're all having fun. We especially like that one scene where the three of them go running. At, you know, she, she takes off and the two guys have to chase her down what looks like about a 12-mile-long pathway over the railroad or something. And she, she's dressed up as a guy. That was funny. Yeah, with that, with that goofy hat. I love yeah. that hat. She was, she was an odd person, though. They did, I don't know that any of them worked. And, and so they must have had some money. Uh, like family wealth, maybe. She was living in that apartment kind of near the train track. She wanted to burn those notes. I, I, I don't know what the notes were. They was kind of left mysterious what they were. And so she just puts them in a pile in the middle of the floor of her apartment and lights them on fire. <laughs> yeah, right. Catching her dress on fire. <laughs> Tries to burn down her building. Yeah. Oh, and my then goodness. Jim put, puts the fire out. I mean, just in time before she catches on fire. But what I really laughed at, though, is then she had that bottle of um, sulfuric acid, and she wanted to take it on their trip with them. And the and, and Jim's like, well, you don't you don't have to bring that with you. You can buy that stuff anywhere. So then she proceeds. She says, well, I want to only use sulfuric acid in this glass jar. So then she proceeds to pour the sulfuric acid down the drain. <laughs> I know, probably ate the drain away. <laughs> it's just... I was just like, what the heck. That was very quirky. Okay, so you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net. And on Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash classicmoviereviews. And thank you to our patrons. We really appreciate your support. And uh, we have a couple new patrons, actually. I want to um, give a shout-out to Farad uh, Sabah. Thank you so much for subscribing. We really appreciate it. And Rich Muniz. Uh, thank you, Rich. We really appreciate your subscription, and uh, it means a lot to us. It helps us uh, keep the show going and pay for some of the costs that are associated with it. So thank you. I second your thank you. Back to the movie. So the first act is really fun, and they've met, and they idolize her because she reminds them of this statue that they they love that is sort of like, the to them, it's like the perfect face, the perfect smile, the perfect angles of the nose and everything and and they, they they they're in love with this statue then they meet her and they're like oh my gosh it's like the statue come to life and they've already put you know they've already put her up on a pedestal like they they haven't even met her and they've already put her up on a pedestal i was uh, looking at one of the posters uh, one of the lobby posters for the film it's a painting of uh, of jean moreau's character and it, it of all the movie posters it really captures her personality in the way she's looking and laughing. It's a its a beautiful one. I don't know if you've seen it. She's got her long hair flowing and wearing a beautiful coat. But a lot of times movie posters don't tell you too much about the film, but this one really does. But it's but again, it's interesting because the title of the film is Jules and Jim, and then the biggest thing on the poster is her. She must have been also the most popular uh, actor of the group 
and probably the best known, so maybe the director, Francois Truffaut, decided we need to we need to lead with her. But you're right, it would it would argue for a, a different title for the film. I'm so happy that we finally did a Francois Truffaut movie. Cause I remember when we were talking about Close Encounters of the Third Kind, how he was an actor in that, and Steven Spielberg really wanted him to be in that, but didn't think that he would agree to do it. And then he did agree to be in the movie. He is, if not the most of, he's at least one of the most famous and prolific French directors and film writers that there's been. I mean, he's made a ton of movies and really, really good movies too. Oh, I know. I, I got uh, kind of interested in his background, so I, I did some reading on him. Tragically, he died at the age of 52. Yeah. Not long after he was appearing in Close Encounters of the Third and Third Kind. But just a few of his films, The 400 Blows from 1959, Fahrenheit 451 from 1966, which... Uh, starred Oscar Werner, uh, The Bride Wore Black, which if I ever see it coming again on Turner Classic Movies, I'll alert you to Yeah, let me know, it, so, for sure. Because it, it often sh then will show up on HBO Max. And uh, he had a stroke and then a brain tumor, and and uh, that, was, that was the end of his life. He had a really popular book I have not read that uh, the book is titled Hitchcock, slash Truffaut in 1966 that he authored because Hitchcock was one of his favorite, favorite directors of all time. Oh, cool. But uh, yeah, I'm glad we're doing... In fact, I, I, I would see us doing uh, The 400 Blows and Fahrenheit 451 in the future. And The, the Bride Wore Black, if it, if it ever comes into popular media distribution. I was going to mention that the film uh, was also... A, Highly rated, it was among uh, several. Uh, it was on several categories in several award groups, uh, nominations and recognition for a top ten or top one hundred film for that year, or of all time. One of them is uh, the one hundred best films of world cinema. It was named for that in twenty ten by. Uh, Empire magazine. It's also, I think, considered part of that French new wave of cinema. And and I noticed there was interesting editing choices and in interesting set design choices. So how they how he inserted those silent film footage from World War One, uh, yeah. and and then and then he would do like a, a really almost amateurish jump cut at the end of that to like another scene. It felt like something that somebody would do who had just started editing movies, but obviously, I mean, he's like one of the best directors ever. It was intentional that it was that way. Certain scenes, especially when they were in that chalet along the Rhine River, that felt like you were watching a stage play. Everything was perfectly arranged, the lighting was perfect, and it looked like you could just almost barely see at the top of the set where the lights would have been. If they had just panned up like two inches, you would have seen the top of the set. <laughs> and I think that was a stylistic choice. And then there were other scenes that where it was just really dark and gritty, like when they were walking at night after they had gone to see that play. Yes. Uh, Jules was pontificating and just it was like two in the morning and and, and Catherine had just kind of had it with them. And so she jumped into the river. <laughs> I know. That's a really famous scene. Elle veut être libre. Elle invente sa vie à chaque instant. Jim n'a pas l'air enchanté. Non, franchement non. 
C'est une pièce confuse et complaisante. Encore un de ces types qui prétendent peindre le vice pour mieux montrer la vertu. On ne sait pas à quelle époque ça se passe, ni dans quel milieu. Le théor n'a pas expliqué si l'héroïne est vierge ou non. Ça n'a aucune importance. Cela n'aurait aucune importance si le conflit était purement sentimental, mais puisque l'auteur précise que le héros est impuissant, que son frère est homosexuel et que sa belle-sœur est nymphomane, il nous doit des précisions physiques sur l'héroïne. C'est logique, non Non. Et puis d'abord, vous ne pensez qu'à ça. Parfaitement, madame. On ne pense qu'à ça et vous nous y aidez. Pas de psychologie ce soir, Jules. Ce n'est pas de la psychologie, c'est de la métaphysique. Dans le couple, l'important, c'est la fidélité de la femme. Celle de l'homme et ses contraires. Qui a écrit la femme est naturelle, donc abominable. C'est Baudelaire, mais il parlait des femmes d'un certain monde, d'une certaine société. Mais pas du tout, il parlait de la femme en général. Ce qu'il dit de la jeune fille, c'est magnifique. Épouvantail, monstre, assassin des lards, dite sotte, dite salope. La plus grande imbécilité unie avec la plus grande dépravation. Oh, un instant, je n'ai pas fini. Et c'est si admirable. J'ai toujours été étonné qu'on laisse entrer les femmes dans l'église. Quelles conversations peuvent-elles avoir avec Dieu Vous êtes deux idiots. Moi, je n'ai rien dit et je n'approuve pas forcément ce que dit Jules à 2 heures du matin. Alors, protestez. Je proteste. Le plongeon de Catherine se grava dans les yeux de Jim au point qu'il en fit le lendemain un dessin, lui qui ne dessinait pas. Un éclair d'admiration jaillit en lui, tandis qu'il envoyait à Catherine par la pensée un baiser invisible. Il était tranquille, il nageait mentalement avec elle et gardait son souffle pour bien effrayer Jules. Catherine Catherine Catherine, pourquoi Oh, Catherine, par là, venez. Catherine, tu es fou Par là, Catherine. Prenez ma main. C'était vraiment really gritty et really on location realistic i thought well she really jumped in the river it looked like throughout the film i could see kind of the shadow of alfred hitchcock in in the in the black and white cinematography and some of the staging and sets uh, production values that sort of thing so i could see where the influence was coming through but boy i tell you francois put his own imprint on it, that's for sure. Oh, and another thing that I kept noticing too is that there were some helicopter shots where, especially in the third act where he would be following the train as it came into that little village. The narrator would describe how this chalet was up in the mountains in these pine groves. The camera was flying over the, the forest and today you'd probably do that with like a drone, but I, that had to have been a helicopter back then. Chapter one, to stay on that for just a, a couple of minutes more. I think it's a, a love triangle, and I do, it's, it's left to, to your own mind about Jules and Jim and whether they're having an affair. But it seems like there's a, three, a threesome going on <laughs> with, diff, with different partners, depending on what day it is and what they're up to. And, and it's so, again, thinking back to when it was made, it's so avant-garde for that time because it was still uh, the era of the Hayes Code in the U.S., not, not in France, obviously, but a lot of the viewers in the U.S. would say, oh, my goodness sakes, look at that, what they're doing. You know, it's like, because then films in the U.S. started to be made, The Children's Hour and some others, and they, they started to deal with these subjects. But this one is, this is a, a trendsetter in my mind, just for that first that first act or that first chapter it's i love that first chapter i really do it's it's like 
children becoming young adults and they have some money and they're in Paris of all places. And then they go and they take that train out to the coast and they, they stay in that gigantic house. and <laughs> They had to have money. Yeah, and then they, and then the they just spend their days. They spend like a few weeks there and they just spend their days kind of wandering around the forest and swimming on the beach and just pontificating about life. And, and then it, I think I think the weather changes or something and... Catherine says, "Oh, it's raining, and I, I want let's go back to Paris. Wow, what a what a life they had, and it was so it was so carefree." J- Jules and Jim sort of halfway worked on writing, becoming writers. Although later Jim becomes very very well known for that. But they both are dabbling in in writing of one kind or another. But they, I think they had family wealth. Yeah, I at think least so. the two guys. I don't know about Catherine. Yeah, I don't I don't know about Catherine either. She. It's kind of ambiguous. She doesn't seem to have a job to support herself, but then she's also kind of with these guys, so maybe maybe they're supporting her. I'm not sure. Then then we get into that second act where it's World War yeah. One, and and uh, you definitely sense like a shift in the film and how this is forcing them to grow up and and it's and and Jules and Jim. Their biggest concern is that they don't want to kill the other one, the other person, because they're on opposite sides. Oscar Werner's character is Austrian. And then Jim was French. It was French, okay. yeah. And so they're on opposite sides of this horrendous trench warfare in those films. That, that, the second chapter is the shortest of the three, obviously, but it has a huge impact on me as a viewer because it, it transitions them from young adults, innocent, out in the countryside to battle-weary veterans uh, after World War One and the, and the carnage that they'd gone through. So I, I think that second chapter of the second part is really fundamental to the film. Well, and it, it shows the shift because Jim and Catherine, they get married and they have a daughter, Sabine, and then they move out to this little chalet on the Rhine and they're living out there and... Uh, then Jules comes out to visit, and it's been it's been a long time. And there was this weird dynamic where it, it started in the first act, where you could tell Jules really also liked Catherine, and they were going to meet at that cafe, and Catherine had something to say to Jules, but then they missed each other by like ten minutes, and then the war happened, and they never got a chance to have that conversation, and then so when after the war he comes out to this little uh, village and have this conversation where they're walking through the, the woods and they kind of each describe to the other person what their life together has been like from their own perspective. That was an interesting conversation because Catherine would only address things that Jules had mentioned. She was very, I would say, very guarded in her talking about her own life and her own feelings. They're, they're living in a, the Black Forest. To describe it as a bohemian lifestyle is is a, an apt way to, 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 to do that. And they then to make it more complicated, Catherine also has had numerous affairs with other men. And then we have Albert show up, who is, uh, he works, I think, at a hotel nearby or has a house nearby. So he enters the picture for a while. And uh, Jules, Jim, and Catherine are living together for quite a bit of time in their, in their uh, Black Forest chalet. 
And there's a there's a rumor in the village nearby that they're a bunch of weirdos, and, and but but yet they're still well liked. And there was that funny scene where they they were all pretending to be weirdos around the table, and the camera was like circling around to each of them. Yes. And and they said that Sabine made them all laugh the hardest. Et Jules. Ils nous aiment tous les deux. Il ne sera pas surpris, et il souffrira moins ainsi. Nous l'aimerons et nous le respecterons. Dans le village au fond de la vallée, le trio était connu sous le nom de Les Trois Fous, mais à part ça, bien vu. Quand elle l'a pris, Catherine inventa un jeu, l'idiot du village. Le village, c'était la table. L'idiot, c'était chacun son tour. Sabine, surtout, déchaînait les fous rires. I, I was trying to think about that lifestyle. I, I respected Jim and his perspective on the fact that he felt that he couldn't keep Catherine and that Catherine was never really ever going to be able to settle down with one man, he felt like, but that he didn't want to lose the ability to be near her. Like he just wanted her to be in his life, especially I think since they'd had a daughter together. And so he kind of gave the blessing to Jules and Catherine to be together. And then, but then Jules said that he got called back to, to Paris and he was also seeing another person, um, Gilbert, Gil, Gilbert, Gil, Gilbert, yep. Gilbert, uh, Vanna Urbino played that character. And you kind of get the sense that he's not 100% sure that he wants to be with Catherine. And then they have some weird letters crossing in the mail and Catherine gets all upset that he's cheating on her. So then when Jules comes back from his trip to Paris, she's not there and she's been off having an affair with, we think probably Albert, but we're not sure. Um, it could have been Albert or it could have been other men. She just, she was, uh, to say she was a free spirit, not be, and then she would disappear. Yeah, she would just disappear for, <clears> for long periods of yeah. time. The uh, the whole lifestyle is is strange. It's funny because we were uh, we were watching a documentary on Ernest Hemingway, and what he saw his life after World War One, when he uh, lived a long time in Spain and and uh, would visit Paris and lived in Paris for a long time, and some of what he describes in is his writings kind of comes through in the way these folks were living in the same time period. Because that first war was so, it just ripped apart the uh, the, the whole uh, fabric of of life in Europe. The end of monarchs, the, the huge destruction and death of so many people. I can see where this would have disrupted what they were doing. Also, just to kind of take a side trip, Sabine, she disappears from the film near the end, and I often wondered what happened to her and her dad. Yeah, but the, I think at a certain point she she just sort of like disappears from the story. I think when yeah. about the time that Jules comes back from Paris, um, she's just not really a part of the story anymore. I think Jules and Catherine they try for a, quite a while to have a baby, but she she can't seem to get pregnant with Jules, and so that kind of devastates her, and she gets really angry and just kind of says that she's done with Jules and Jules. And she says that you should just go back to Paris. And Jules agrees that, yeah, I'm just going to go back to Paris. And then he ends up marrying Gilbert, 
quite a period of time goes by. Maybe the reason Sabine isn't there is that she's off at school or something like that. One of the end, one of the scenes near the end is the Nazis burning books. So would have that that have been like in the mid thirties? Yeah, thirty three to thirty six in that realm. And once they got in power in Germany, so Sabine was a little girl, probably around nineteen twenty two. So yeah, she would have been in her teens at that point near the end yeah, of the movie. So that's probably why she wasn't there anymore. She's probably off at boarding school or something. One thing I found happening to me in the last few minutes of the film, there were two or three times when I thought it was about to end, and then and then it didn't. I don't want to I don't want to go into too much detail on that, but there were there were scenes in the film where oh my gosh, oh my gosh, this is going to be the end of this film, and lo and behold, it goes on. And then there's a lot of back and forth traveling between Paris and the uh, Black Forest, and and it kind of was like. It would build me up to think this is going to happen, and then I'd, I'd say, oh, no, not yet. And then again, yeah. and then when the final scenes do take place, I'm thinking, okay, is this just another setup? <laughs> and, and I remember when we were watching it, Nancy and I were like, oh. At the, you know, it was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to stay away from too much about the, the final part. It's... The word that came to mind when I was watching this movie near the end was was allegory. And the definition of allegory is a story, poem, or picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning, typically a moral or political one. Oh, definitely, yes. And I felt like this whole movie was an allegory. And I actually wondered how much of it was real and how much of it was made up by one of the characters. So do you remember... In the first act of the film, they were they were at that gymnasium and they were boxing and kind of like kicking each other and just kind of goofing yeah. around. Yep. And then just out of nowhere, Jules says, "Hey, I've been I've been working on a story and it's about our time, our life together." And and then he just goes and, and I don't know where he gets it, but he brings he just has the manuscript right there at the gymnasium. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then Jules says, "I'd like to read you some of it." And Jim's like, "Okay, great." And they just and he just starts reading it. To Jim, right there in the in the gymnasium with all these other people like working out, I thought that was odd. But then I don't know. I I, I kind of want to watch it again, but I, I almost feel like how much of what we saw after that was Jules' story that he was writing about their life together, and how much of it was actually what happened. And maybe it was almost like a retrospective thing where Jules finished that story at some point, and that's what we saw. <laughs> the movie has a very dreamlike quality to it. And I think the way that it's edited and the way that some of the s- shots are set up and some of the dialogue too, and just some of the quirkiness of it, like how they, <laughs> how they're out at that, sh- that, that uh, big white house along the coast. And then they just walk through the forest and they find like every three or four feet, there's like some other odd thing that they find, like a pack of cigarettes, some matches, a broken ceramic bowl, just odds and ends of weird things and i thought this feels like a dream it feels like the kind of thing that you would wake up from and and go huh that was weird i wonder what that means well i was reading about some of the styles that were used and he was using a lot of that kind of thing like i i didn't realize this until i was later reading about it some of the camera work was was used with the lightest weight cameras they could find and they filmed it uh mounted on bicycles Oh, my gosh. Now, in 1960, that would have been a real feat. But there's a lot of that kind of 
It is dreamlike. It, it is. And I think the music adds to that black and white photo- that cinematography. It's the kind of film that in 1960 would have been really hard to be made by a, a U.S. filmmaker in our, in, in our country. It just was so different. Well, and I think that some of the themes wouldn't have passed through. Like, it would have been, there's just no way, yeah. Even the way the film ends, which I, we don't have to talk about exactly what happens, but even the way the <laughs> film ends, it's like, it's like dreamlike. It, it, it's sort of like you would wake up from that having a dream and go, whoa, that was really weird. One of the characters just sort of walks off at the end. He just sort of like walks yeah. off and, and then the movie ends. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was strange. It, but I, uh, at the same time, I really, really liked it, and it really affected me. I, I, I kept thinking about it, and I, and I, this morning I kept thinking about it, and I was like, I need to watch it again because there's just a lot there. And I actually felt kind of bad for all the characters. I, I wonder what their life would have been like if World War One hadn't happened. I think you best described it when you say it's like a dream. I really do. Especially the, the chapter three after the war. And I think... Not to over, oversell it, but I think after World War One in the 1920s, because there was also a worldwide pandemic that kills anywhere from 30 to 80 million people. The the numbers vary by whoever's done the count. So the whole, and then there was a huge upheaval in in different kinds of forms of government with the communists in the Soviet Union and. Everything was just sort of tossed in the air in the 1920s. And I think uh, all of that affected how people lived and what their lives were like. And I think he captures a lot of that in this film. I think that third act, especially when they're in that chalet, is, is, is a safe place from the storm. The way that Jim is always in that rocking chair with that blanket over his lap, he looks like he's about on his deathbed. You know, he looks so old and... And res- resigned, and, and I think he's he's just kind of like, well, I'm gonna just live my the rest of my life here and collect bugs and write children's books. <laughs> Catherine's not having it. Like she, I feel like she's she's like, this isn't how I saw my life going, and this is not where I want to end up. And then Jules is sort of like just lost, and and comes to that house looking for some answers and looking for something because i feel like he is really unmoored as well he, he's he's just wandering the countryside visiting these war memorials what was your rating for the film how did you view that probably a 10 actually yeah i think i would give it a 10 only because i feel like this is one of those movies that i'll just be constantly thinking about for the next two weeks and then uh, i'll just go back and watch periodically over time now that i've seen it I uh, I would give it a ten unequivocally because of the the style and it broke so much new ground. And uh, Oscar Werner, who, who who does a marvelous job in the film, had other films that were like this that he made. He was in uh, Francois Truffaut's Fahrenheit 451, and then he he's in the Spy who came in from the cold from 1965. He had a he had an interest in doing films that were really uh, unusual or avant-garde and uh, I think this was at the early part of that period for him so I would give it a 10 I I would recommend for anyone who's seen it or not seen it to watch it again it just takes you to a different place 
it's the kind of movie that you just have to let wash over you and, and just uh, absorb it. There's parts of it that don't make any sense, and there's parts of it that are sort of like goofy and, and just weird, like that whole scene in her apartment where she practically catches the place on fire and then pours sulfuric acid down the drain. <laughs> it's the culmination of all these events and these scenes and the way that it's put together, the editing, the cinematography, the acting is outstanding. Like, I, I thought Jean Moreau was absolutely brilliant in this movie. I mean, it's got to be one of her best films. I mean, I haven't seen all her films, but from what I was reading, people seem to think this is one of her best performances. There were a lot of awards and nominations for the film, too. I'm looking at a list here. Best film from any source, best foreign actress. It won for a best European film in an award. It goes on and on. A lot of these awards are from different... Uh, groups that, that uh, you don't, we don't or ordinarily run into here with the reviews that we do, but it's really high re highly regarded. And what's interesting is it's quite different from the film that we were going to do originally, The Bride Wore Black, from 1968. Completely different. The Bride Wore Black really shows a lot of Hitchcock uh, mentoring or, or, or influence, I think, maybe is a word for it. Anyway, we both gave it tens. That's not bad. And if you want some fun reading, go to the IMDb page and read the reviews from the users because you'll get everything from this is a masterpiece to I still don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully that's not the same person. No, no, no. Two different people. <laughs> well, it's, it was fun. Now, now, coming up, before I forget, one of our listeners has suggested four James Bond films. I think we're going to have a guest on for the Dr. No episode. Probably the best, in my view, of the films is From Russia with Love. I really enjoy that film. Well, I can't wait to watch Moonraker. <laughs> I think Moonraker was my first James Bond movie that I saw in the theater. And Her Majesty's Secret Service is the one time they had a different Bond. I don't know the, how hard it is to find that film. I haven't seen it since it came out. Yeah, we'll have to double-check that. And then Moonraker? Yeah, that's it. Well... That's our review of Jules and Jim. You've been listening to Classic Movie Reviews and coming to you from North Bend, this is Matt. And here in Los Angeles, it's Bob wishing everybody happy movie watching. I think it's I think it's appropriate that we got confused about which character was which because honestly like I, I it took me a while to like figure that out <laughs>